Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Waterbury Clock Company was located in the Brass City for almost 90 years until it was bought by Timex Corporation in 1941. The old factory still stands, and with it, the presence of radium, a radioactive element. Coming up, we'll ask a state environmental official about the site's future. Today, where we live, we're talking about the former Waterbury Clock Company because many of the Connecticut women who worked there in the early part of the 20th century got sick. Some died fairly young. These young women became known as the Radium Girls. Now, later in the show, we're going to learn more about Waterbury resident May Kane. She was one of the last surviving Radium Girls. May Kane was the great aunt of WNPR intern Tim Cohn. Coming up, Tim and his mother are going to share their memories of May. And we're going to hear from her from a video recording Tim did while in middle school, where she talks about the job she held at the Waterbury Clock Company back in the 1920s and the long-lasting effects that it had on her health. Now, have you heard about the Radium Girls? Did a member of your family work at the same clock factory in Waterbury? We want you to tell us their story by joining the conversation today, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wnpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, several books have been written about these women, impacted not only in Connecticut, but in other states as well. Joining us now from London is author Kate Moore. She's written the book The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. And Kate's joining us um, by cell phone, so bear with us on the connection. Kate, can you hear me? I can, yes. Thank you so much. Kate, are you still there? I am, yeah. Can you hear me? I can hear you. So this is uh, by cell from London, but we, well, we thank you for joining us uh, for to talk about your book, uh, The Radium Girls. Now, you're uh, um, um, living in the U.K., but this is a story that impacted uh, many hundred uh, American women. How did you hear about The Radium Girls? Well, I actually discovered the story through directing a play about them, there were two plays, one about the New Jersey girls and one about the Illinois women. Sadly, there is no play, to my knowledge, about the Waterbury women, but maybe that will be uh, corrected in due course. And it was through directing the play that I discovered their story and I conducted lots of research about them because I wanted my production to be authentic. And it was through that research I discovered there was no book that existed that was about the women themselves that brought their personal stories and experiences to light. And that is what my book tries to do. It tries to give the individual Radium Girls a voice. Now, they were called the Radium Girls because they worked in these factories um, with paint that had radium in it. Uh, Tell us about these jobs that these women took, again, um, around the time of World War I. Well, dial painting, as the job was known, was an incredibly lucrative, glamorous job. The women were in the top 5% of female wage earners nationally. And it was also, as I say, a very glamorous job because radium was luminous, glow in the dark. And the women themselves used to get covered in the dust from the radium particles. 
and they themselves also used to use the paint, believing it was safe to paint their toenails and to use it as makeup and so on. And so the women thought they were so lucky to get these jobs, these well-paid, glamorous jobs, these artistic jobs as well. They were listed as artists in their town directories. And a lot of these women were from poor, working-class immigrant families, and many of them were teenagers. So they thought they were so lucky. And the job itself, just to talk a little bit about that, required the women to paint numbers onto dials, onto aeronautical dials, and onto watches and clocks. And they were taught to lip point, to put their paintbrushes between their lips. And so as they did so, they ingested the radium. And now one of the reasons we're talking about your book today, Kate, uh, The Radium Girls, again, the dark, story of, the dark story of America's shining women, is one of our production interns here at WMPR in Hartford, Connecticut, Tim Cohn. His great aunt was one of these radium girls, and Tim joins me in studio. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Now, you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your great aunt, May Kane. She lived with you uh, for a large part of your life. Yeah, so uh, May actually went to live with us when I was about three years old, four years old, and she lived with us until her death in 2014. So she was with us for about 14 years in total. Um, and I remember May would talk about this as one of her first jobs ever. Uh, she, she went out of high school and then right into the factory and worked there for about one month. Uh, she had a three-week trial period and then one week on the job. And then she was, she was actually handed a pink slip because she was so bad at the job. Um, yeah, she she did not she did not like the taste of radium, nor she liked the grittiness of it, and so uh, the foreman of the factory transferred her to the bookkeeping department. Now, Tim, I understand you interviewed uh, your mother, uh, Patricia Cohn, about uh, her her aunt uh, May Kane, and we have that interview. We want to play it, and we're hoping to get Kate Moore, the author, uh, into the BBC studios uh, because we had technical difficulty this morning. So let's hear this interview you did with your mother, Patricia Cohn. The first thing she noticed was her teeth. And the when you're lip pointing, the radium really gets into the bones and it just decays the bones. And she started to notice that her teeth were getting very loose. She was mid-30s when she lost all of her teeth and that bothered her for the rest of her life. Um, she had jaw pain. Her gums hurt continually until she, to the day she died. She was also unable to have any children that was later attributed to, to the radium poisoning. And uh, she had colon cancer and she had breast cancer. And there were just a lot of health issues that came up for her. She was luckier than most of them, really, most of the girls, because it was such a good-paying job and it was considered a clean job in Waterbury. They stayed a long time and they did and ingested a lot of radium. She was one of the lucky ones. I remember when I would talk to her about the stories uh, down when she was living with us and she would, would talk about her, her life. She was oftentimes very sad thinking about the Radium Girls because she had many friends in the factory and a lot of them died you know, 10 years out of, of working in the factories or even less than 10 years. Did she ever tell you about those stories? Did she ever bring up their, their suffering to you as a child? She did. She would talk about how pretty these girls were. They were all 18, 20. They were very young women. And she would say they were pretty and they were happy and they had such wonderful futures ahead of them. And then they started getting sick. And an awful lot of them started getting sick. And then she'd start reading their obituaries in the paper. 
and it really did concern her. There was the only the only really common bond between any of them was working in the factory together, painting dials. Um, one of the things that she did tell us was that there was a doctor that the radium company had hired to go around to the factories and examine these women and basically tell them that they were fine and this had absolutely nothing to do with the radium. He used to do this in New Jersey. He came to Waterbury and the friend of May's that got hired with her, said, why don't we go and see this doctor and see if this is from the radium? And they went to see him, and it was the same man from New Jersey, and he wasn't an MD, he was a PhD. But they passed him off as a doctor to these young women, and he examined each and every one of them and declared that this had absolutely nothing at all to do with radium. It must just be something else in Waterbury, because this had absolutely nothing to do with with radium and she was furious to find out that this was the same man who went from factory to factory and just lied to each and every one of them they thought he was a medical doctor do you remember her ever blaming the radium job that she had or do you ever remember her blaming uh the time that she spent in the factory for her health ailments or did she just not talk about it that much or was she more quiet about it may didn't even know she was a radium girl until probably the early 2000s. She knew she were, obviously knew she worked in the factory, but radium at that time was a cure-all. She never connected it to the radium she ingested. She thought she was just having peculiar health problems, but she never connected it to that until there was an article in the Waterbury Observer about the factory that they wanted to renovate. And when they went into the building to examine it to see if it was structurally sound, there was radium everywhere. And they said, we can't, not only can we not renovate it, we can't do anything with this building whatsoever. And the story broke, and then there was a radio show about it. And eventually, the street right behind the Timex Museum in Waterbury was named and dedicated Radium Girl Way. And May was the lone survivor, but she was at the dedication of the street honoring these women. And that was a big day for her. Now, later in, in, in life, when she started to receive a little bit of, of press about her being the last surviving radium girl, what do you remember as being probably the most spectacular thing about this for you? Like, what, 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 do, you, what do you remember as being the most interesting about the whole story um, that stood out in your mind? I think the most interesting thing for me, and for May as well, was that nobody knew about it for so many years. It was a secret, and the state kept it a secret. And that really bothered her. It made her very, very angry. And all she kept saying to me when she found out was that these poor women, they were young, they were beautiful, they were nice, they worked hard, they were just trying to support their families and themselves. And this never ever should have happened. And she could never actually understand why she lived. Why was she still here and so many of these other young women weren't? And she felt terrible about that. She and her husband were the beloved aunt and uncle, the absolute favorites of all the cousin, all of my cousins. And they had an open door policy. If you didn't like what your mother had for dinner, you'd go next door and see what May had. 
And I remember when I was growing up, she had a nice candy drawer and she always had your favorite candy ready to go, ready for you. And I think that that was something that you probably remember too. She had one drawer dedicated to all the kids' candy in her dining room buffet. And you could walk in and you could just have your candy. And it was always the stuff that your parents wouldn't buy you. The Junior Mints were my favorite. They were mine too. (laughs) Thanks for talking to me, Mom. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. You just heard Middlebury, Connecticut residents Tim and Patricia Cohn talking about a member of their family. Meg Kane died in 2014 at the age of 107. She was one of the last surviving radium girls, which is what we're focusing the show on today. These women in Connecticut and in other factories in Illinois and New Jersey worked in clock factories in the 1920s, painting glow-in-the-dark dials with radium-laced paint. At the time, they didn't know how toxic radium was. Many of these women got sick, and some died horrible deaths. Um, We're talking about this as well because of a new book that's out by Kate Moore. Uh, She's written The Radium Girl. The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. And we're going to hopefully be able to interview her from BBC Studios in London. Just after the break, we're also going to hear um, other stories of Waterbury natives, of relatives who worked at uh, this Waterbury clock factory, including Jackie Carroll. We're going to hear her story after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the Radium Girls. This name refers to hundreds of young women who worked in factories in Connecticut, Illinois, and New Jersey, painting watch dials with glow-in-the-dark paint. The paint was made with radium, a radioactive element that's highly toxic. But back then, in the 1920s, radium was seen as miraculous. Author Kate Moore writes in her book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, the element was dubbed liquid sunshine, and it lit up not just the hospitals and drawing rooms of America, but its theaters, music halls, grocery stores, and bookshelves. Again, that's from Kate Moore's book, and she's an author. Joining us now from the studios of BBC London, Kate Moore, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. (laughs) A much cleaner connection. So uh, for our listeners who might just be uh, tuning in now, tell us again about uh, the Radium Girls and why they were drawn to these jobs in these uh, clock factories in the 1920s. Well, being a dial painter at the time we're talking about, as you say, Roaring Twenties and also the First World War, this was a job that was very well paid. It was incredibly glamorous. It was artistic. And these women, often many of them teenagers, were attracted by the high salary, by the camaraderie amongst the workers. And it was seen as the elite job for the poor working girls. Now, uh, we heard a little bit earlier from uh, Tim Cohn, a Middlebury, uh, Connecticut resident, and his mother, Patricia. Um, his great aunt was one of these radium girls, May Kane. She died in, in 2014. And um, Tim, uh, as a, a young boy, uh, had the chance to actually uh, record her for a school history project. And we have some clips from May Kane. Here she is talking about this process that the women used when they were painting these watch dials. You had to dip that brush in the radium and use it, and then just dip the, the brush in the water. But of course, you never got it clean. Then you would have to put it in your mouth and point it so that you could use the numbers. 
And that went on all day long. So, Kay, uh, May Kane uh, is talking about this process called lip pointing. Tell us about why the, the female workers were encouraged to do this. Well, it was the only way you could really get a clean finish on your numbers. So what the girls were doing were tracing the numbers on these dials with very, very fine paintbrushes. They only had about 30 bristles in them. But because the numbers were so fine, you know, some of them, if you think of the smallest pocket watch, um, the numbers on that are only about a millimetre in width. So the bristles would spread with the paint. And as May described, while there was water, they would try and clean the brush with water and then put it in their mouths to make this fine point for this millimetre thick work. And the only way to get that fine point was to put it in your mouth. And I'll just add as well, because May referenced that water, actually, while the girls started with water, a bit later on, it was taken away from them because they found that when you, you know, rinsed your brush in the water, the radium came off and kind of ended up as like sediment in the water dishes and the company deemed that that was wasting the expensive material and so eventually the girls didn't even have the water dishes to clean the brushes with. It was going straight in their mouths and that was it. I read an excerpt from your book about how radium was viewed back then but how, when did the company officials know about radium being toxic and did that information ever get to these young women? Well, it never got to the women, and in fact, they were told the direct opposite. May Cubberley, who I write about in the book, who was one of the New Jersey radium girls, she says the first thing we asked was, does this stuff hurt you? And they said no. They said we didn't need to be afraid that it wasn't dangerous. But you've asked, when did the company officials know radium was dangerous? Well, it was well known that radium was toxic, that it hurt people, but they believed that it was only in large amounts. And one of the really shocking things about the story is that you have May Keane and her fellow colleagues, if you've described, putting radium-laden brushes into their mouths. But in the laboratories of these companies, you had workers who were protected with lead aprons who weren't allowed to touch the radium with their bare hands. And that was because it was well known from the turn of the century that radium could destroy human tissue. Now, again, we should mention that these uh, young women, I mean, this was, a, this was a great factory job for them. And there was something kind of alluring about working with the radium. They didn't know it was toxic, but it glittered. How did that impact um, some of the decisions they made? Uh, because they didn't know that what they were working with was so toxic in terms of going out um, on the town after work. Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the charming and yet horrifying things about the story is, as you say, the girls thought it was perfectly safe. So they would deliberately, for example, wear their good dresses to the plant. So when they went out dancing in the dance halls and later the speakeasies, they would be shimmering with this radium glowing luminous dust because they get covered with it at work. And as I say, they deliberately wear their party frocks so that they could go out dancing. Um, And it's really important to say that, you know, there with absolutely no sign that this radium was perceived to be toxic, even though people had died of it. There was this weird situation where, because the radium companies who were making money out of the radium industry, they were putting it into cosmetics, into food, they were promoting radium spas where people would go for like a health tonic and that sort of thing. the radium firms making all this money were funding research and that research that they funded apparently proved that radium was safe 
And so that's what was kind of published in journals and why the radium girls thought it was perfectly safe to get covered in this dust and not only to enjoy that kind of after effect of the job, but also sometimes to, you know, joke around with the material. So they would paint it onto their nails. There's a story of one Italian girl painting the radium onto her teeth for a smile that glowed in the dark. Uh, we're speaking with Kate Moore, author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shiny Women. She joins us today from the studios of BBC London. Um, I wanted to go uh, to a listener um, who actually her mother was one of uh, the, the Radium Girls. Uh, Jackie Carroll is joining the conversation. Jackie, uh, welcome to where we live. Well, thank you. I've lived with this all my life, and I watched my mother waste away and die. But um, she was uh, recruited from the graduating class of Wilby High School, and they needed 18 people to work that summer, and she thought it was a great idea before she went away to college. And uh, um, I'm holding a picture of a picnic they had at Quasi, and there were eight, there are 18 girls in a pyramid-like, I don't know what um, I'm probably bleachers were behind it. And these women were recruited from Wilby High School. They were the top-notch graduates, and most of them took the jobs. Um, my grandmother didn't want my mother to take it, but she decided she was going to go with the group. And these 18 women all died of radium poisoning. Um, my mother was... Um, she died in the hospital at Waterbury Hospital, and she was down to 40 pounds, and nobody could tell us why the doctors at the hospital. She just wasted away, and then she died uh, in the hospital at 40 pounds. And she Jackie, the skeleton. Jackie, I understand that um, she died when you were still a teenager. That's right. My brother was 12, and I was 15, and then my older sister was... Uh, 18, but she didn't get that involved because she was involved in roller skating and dance skating and so forth. So most of it was left to me. And I sat with her all the time because she was a wonderful mother, absolutely, totally devoted to us. My father was away in Persia uh, with the Persian Gulf Command for five years. And uh, I learned a lot and I grew up. I was an honor student in school, but uh, one night I just was working my part-time job, and I came home, and one of the neighbors said, um, your mother died, and it was it was just cruel. I mean, she didn't mean anything by it, and it was like, you know, the link. It, was, it linked us all together because the family all lived in the one section of Brooklyn, Waterbury, and... Um, but this picture tells the story of 18 young girls in in bleachers, and they made a pyramid, and my mother was uh, at the top, but she wasn't. She mm. was um, in the first row, the second person. Um, you know, the, it, um, they didn't pay that well um, at the uh, Lux Clock, where she was, and... Um, but this outing at Quasi told it all. They mm. just made the be most of it. And I know that I had to, my brother and I had to, and sister, when they finally caught up with her, that we all had to have tests done 
and um, they didn't know what she died from. They had no idea. She just kept wasting away. And I said, when I went to the hospital the last time, she gave me her wedding ring and told me to hang on to it. And she wouldn't be needing it anymore. And that's when I asked the nurses, and they said, well, she's down to 40 pounds. Well, Jackie, Jackie, I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your mother um, at a young age and that um, that she— 15. But we thank you for sharing a little bit of the story of your mother. Uh, you know, Kate Moore is on the phone with us. She wrote a book called The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Kate, you're probably able to hear uh, Jackie talk about uh, what this was like for the family. As these women started to get sick, what were they told? How did they find out? Did they ever link uh, their work with the radium lace paint to their condition? They did eventually, but it took a, a very, very long time because the radium firms obviously didn't want their you know, very lucrative industry to be destroyed by these claims. And so the companies tried to discredit the women and dismiss the claims, you know, as Jackie was just describing there, you know, the 18 girls working together, 18 girls getting sick, 18 girls dying. And it was the women themselves who were kind of originally making the link, kind of, you know, realising they were all suffering from the same ailment. Surely there must be a connection. But one of the shocking things about the story is that despite the fact that the first radium girl died in 1922, it wasn't until three years later that officials properly started investigating and autopsies began. And the only reason autopsies began was because finally a male employee of a radium firm died. And it was that that kick-started the proper investigation by the authorities. Now, Kate, I wanted to, in their book, you you do a really thorough job explaining uh, the story of these women, many of them who encouraged their sisters, their cousins, their neighbors to also take these jobs um, in these factories, painting the watch dials. Uh, but when we talk about the fact that, that many of them got sick, it wasn't this quick thing. Can you talk about, we heard May Kane um, in an interview with her, her, her uh, great nephew at the time, that you know she lost all of her teeth by the time she was in her 30s. 30s. I mean, these women really suffered. Can you talk us through some of the, the symptoms that they um, had? Yes, I will. I mean, it, it started quite innocuously. It was quite innocent, you know, a, a tooth hurting. You're not going to be alarmed that it is a poisoning to begin with, or if you have an aching limb or a sore hip or something like that. But these were all the early symptoms of radium poisoning. And what happened to them truly was gruesome. You know, May described how she lost her teeth. Well, that was actually only the start of it if you had been thoroughly poisoned because it would essentially attack the women's bodies from the inside out. They were nicknamed in Illinois the Society of the Living Dead and this really was a living death that the women suffered because the radium settled in their bones. There was no way to get it out and once in there it emanated its radioactive power and destroyed those bones while the women were still alive. So when they studied the bones afterwards, they found they were honeycombed and moth-eaten. They had holes in them. And these women were so 
terribly affected by this, by the weakening of their bones that, for example, Grace Fryer had to wear a steel back brace to keep her spine upright because it was devastated. You know, the vertebrae had been crushed by the radium. Um, and also other people, Elizabeth Dunn, who was a Waterbury dial painter, she simply tripped on the dance floor one day and broke her leg because the bones were so fragile. And that is what many of the radium girls experienced. You write in your book, uh, one of the women, uh, Molly Maggia, I believe, uh, in 1921, she started working um, at a factory, I believe, in New Jersey, uh, doing the painting these watch dials with the radium lace paint. Um, when she kept going back to the dentist and the doctor to try to figure out what was wrong with her, eventually they diagnosed her with syphilis. Was this common? It, it was common that it was misdiagnosed and, and I think there were probably several girls who were diagnosed with syphilis because the thing, you know, it, it, there were similarities in the disease, but really, you know, it, you can test for syphilis and you can prove whether it is or, or isn't. And in Molly's case, the doctor who was performing the test was actually a dentist and it seems he got mixed up and confused. So even though he said it was a positive um you know, the test came back positive when they actually autopsied her. They said there was no trace of syphilis. But that was a very handy misdiagnosis for the radium firms because, as I say, once the girls started connecting the dots and the radium girls realised it was the radium that had poisoned them and therefore, understandably, wanted answers from the companies who had poisoned them. Well, if you've got some girls who have allegedly died of syphilis, then it's very easy to discredit them, to demean them, and, you know, awful for the families as well that these, you know, slurs, a sexually transmitted disease is what killed their young teenage daughters and sisters. It was very handy for the radium firms because they tried to dismiss all connection to the radium. And that was just a useful example for them. And I understand you mentioned um, the companies when they started to get questions about uh, these women as they were getting sick. Some of them were dying. Um, they were hiring people. I understand a doctor who examined women um, in Connecticut um, that, w that produced a report. But this was not actually a doctor. No, that that's right. I mean, it's incredible to think about. But they, yeah, you had you had doctors who were not actually medical doctors but were giving medical advice and as you say testing them and saying that there was nothing wrong with the girls to try and kind of hush this up because radium poisoning is very insidious it takes years to show itself so you know it can be years from that first painful tooth to a more devastating poisoning and so these doctors hired by the Waterbury Clock Company were testing the women and saying no you've got you know there's no trace of radium poisoning in you. There was one woman, Catherine Moore, who was told eight times by the doctors that there was no trace of radium poisoning in her body, and she died of radium poisoning. This is where we live. You can join the conversation. Was one of your family relatives a radium girl uh, who worked at the former Waterbury Clock Company in the uh, early 1920s? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to take a call from a listener. Uh, Steve's calling from Waterbury. Steve, you're on the show. How you doing? Um, my, um, I just want to say a word about May Kane. I, I basically grew up next to her. My great-grandmother was her lifelong best friend they talked on the phone every day and i i i uh was hearing her great nephew talk about the bowl of candy and everything and i just remember going over there and 
seen this little dog with, with its eyes bulging out of its head all the time, and I got a good laugh out of it. But she was always such a great lady. But I remember hearing about the whole radium uh, exposure, and I never knew that about her, and I just thought that it was such an anomaly that that she lasted, uh, you know, almost over a century uh, with over that exposure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as as the city of Waterbury now, you know, after all its industrial um, heyday is, has gone in the past, now that they're renovating, um, they're starting to see in the soil the remnants of these um, har- harmful chemicals like the mercury, like the radium uh, and lead and things like that. And um, as the last generation of these people who were exposed in these factories, like, you know, like the poor Irish immigrants that, that um, I'm descended from who all worked in these button factories and these um, watch factories in Waterbury and had no idea what they were exposed to, um, you're still starting to see that in the city itself beneath the ground that it too was affected greatly in you know that now they have so much cleanup to do um and um hopefully it doesn't affect anybody else on in the future well steve thank you so much for your call and you know coming up we are going to speak to a state official about uh what happens to the old waterbury clock company it's been standing there for years uh, questions about uh, as you mentioned hazardous uh, uh materials on site but we thank you for calling in and, and sharing your memory of may kane again she was one of the last surviving radium girls she died in 2014 at the age of 107 she was a great aunt of an intern here at wmpr tim Cohn. one of the reasons we're focusing on on the Radium Girls. Uh, and I wanted to ask, uh, go back to the author, Kate Moore, of the Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Um, as uh, more and more of these women were getting sick, um, even though the company was denying that uh, the radium lace paint was uh, the cause, talk us through how some of these women actually then pursued litigation and what happened. Well, I mean, for me, this is the extraordinary part of the story because it's a heartbreaking story as we've been talking about these young, innocent women not knowing that they were being poisoned and yet that is what happened to them. But it's not just heartbreaking. It is an inspiring story of strength and courage because despite suffering from these gruesome symptoms we've described of their teeth falling out and their bones breaking inside their bodies, these young women found the courage to fight against these radium firms who were denying responsibility and they embarked on a lengthy and difficult legal struggle to hold the companies to account. And bear in mind that once radium is in your body it is impossible to get it out. Many of these women knew that they faced a death sentence and yet they still chose to fight and they were doing that in an altruistic way because this was to protect women who came after them, workers who came after them, and that is the legacy that they've left us by pursuing this incredible fight for justice. And I just want to pick up briefly on what happened in Connecticut, um, because that for me is one of the kind of horrifying corporate elements of the story, because there were not 
you, you know, there were big court cases in New Jersey and Illinois that became national news and were written about and that sort of thing. But it was very difficult when they were trying to find evidence of the connection, um, you know, to prove this was occupational poisoning, to find cases in Waterbury, documented cases in Waterbury that had gone to the courts and so on. And that was really important because it was the Waterbury women who provided the corroborating evidence that was needed to say this isn't just happening in New Jersey, this is also happening in Connecticut, you know, this is an occupational problem. But the reason they found no legal cases in Connecticut is because the firms essentially paid them off. They kind of paid them, you know, silence money. And they did that because Waterbury obviously was a clock company. It wasn't a radium company. And so in settling, in you know, having these out-of-court settlements with the women they were able to kind of hush up what was happening and it didn't impact on their wider business. And I just want to mention one particular case that really shocked me, which is the case of Mildred Cardo, who is a Waterbury girl, who died aged 22 on the 19th of March, 1929. And her young husband, who they'd only been married for six months before she died, he was offered one of these out-of-court settlements and the money that the company offered him for his wife's death was $43.75. And that, for me, is just abhorrent. And I just wanted to touch on that because... I think the Waterbury women were kind of shafted twice over, really, because, you know, not only had they been poisoned, but they were also given the wrong advice. And, you know, obviously they took what they could. But when you're being offered $43.75 for a relative's death, it is just shocking. Kate, in your research for your book, do we have any idea how many women uh, were sick after working again at the former Waterbury Clock Company, also uh, these uh, factories in New Jersey. There were two, I believe, and one in Illinois, Ottawa, Illinois. How many of these women became sick and how many died? Unfortunately, we can't actually put a number on it, which is another part of the tragedy, I think. That's partly because of the misdiagnosis that I talked about. So many of the radium girls, particularly the ones who became sick first, they weren't buried on death certificates that said their work had killed them. That only came later. And also employment records didn't exist at that time. You know, Jackie mentioned that her mother dial painted. She thought she'd dial paint before she went off to college. And often it was high school students, you know, sometimes just working a summer. And there weren't the records there to be able to list all their names. So we can't put a number on it. We can't put a number on the women who died. We also can't put a number on those women who perhaps didn't die in the early wave of things but were still poisoned still suffered like may for example and like josephine lamb who is another of the waterbury women who was bedridden for 50 years um and so unfortunately we just can't put a number on it this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Kate Moore is with us from the studios of BBC in London. She's the author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shiny Women. As we've been learning, hundreds of female factory workers, including women in Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, worked in these factories in the early 1920s. Many of them became sick from the radium lace paint 
Some died. Did you know that old factory is still standing in Waterbury today? What's going to happen to that building? What happened to the other factories in New Jersey and in Illinois? We're going to find out after the break, and you can join the conversation, too. Had you ever heard of the Radium Girls? Was someone in your family one of these women that worked in these factories? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been learning about the young women who worked in factories in the 1920s uh, painting watch dials with uh, paint that was laced with radium. Uh, on, the f- on the line with us from the studios of BBC London is author Kate Moore. Her new book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Uh, there's a connection uh, to Connecticut in this story. That's because of the former Waterbury Clock Company uh, where uh, a few hundred of these women worked and some got sick and some died at a relatively young age because of the toxic paint uh, they, that they put in their mouths. Uh, I wanted to now join, have Jeff Semansic join us uh, in this conversation. He is director of the Radiation Division at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection because we want to know what's happening with this old factory in the Brass City. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. I-, I wanted to ask you, when did you first hear about the Radium Girls? Oh. Uh, well, personally, I first heard about it when I started working with the, <laughs> as the radiation director in the state a couple years ago. Uh, but I know that our agency was uh, informed, uh, kind of became aware of the, the issue in about 1998 or so. I think it was through efforts of uh, uh, re- researchers like, like Kate that uh, made that aware to the agency. So tell us about uh, this old factory in Waterbury. Is it pretty much intact? And what's happened with the property? So the uh, the Waterbury Clock Factory is a relatively large complex. Uh, you know, at the time in its heyday, it was probably 3,000 people employed in there in the early 1900s. And it's uh, six or seven large buildings that are spread out over about two um, two blocks. And uh, I would say it's in a mixed state of uh, usage at this point. You know, it's uh, there are portions of the uh, the building that are just from a structural point of view. Um, uh, you know, dangerous to, to access because they've been neglected. Uh, there's other areas that have been uh, uh, are used for light industrial and uh, some areas that are used for residential. When you mentioned about hazardous materials on site, radium dust, but what about radon? Is that a concern? Uh, well, radon's always a concern. I mean, the, you know, there's a couple things uh, to remember with radon. First of all, uh, you know, radium in itself is does occur in nature you know it occurs naturally in soil it's a kind of a breakdown of uranium and thorium that, that goes there and in certain locations are more prone to it so um, certain types of rock are there so we always watch for radon in most areas uh, at the time when um, the initial remediation efforts were done in the uh, uh, the clock factory in the late 1900 uh, in the 1990s early 2000s there was a radon test done and uh, had not seen any, you know, significant radar levels. But it's something we continue to to, to be be aware of and, and monitor as we as we watch. Now we got a call from a, a listener uh, from Waterbury, Jeff, a little bit earlier in the show, and, and he was commenting on the concerns uh, not only from this factory but others of, of the uh, contaminants in the soil. I mean, what can you tell Waterbury residents about their safety with this uh, factory still standing? 
Yeah, so what I, what I can tell you right now is that, you know, that we are concerned about public safety. That's our primary concern. And we've taken the, we've worked with the property owners to make sure the, the appropriate cleanup has been done or the measures are in place to, uh, uh, to ensure access is limited uh, with that. So in the, uh, originally the state had uh, learned about the, uh, the clock factories and they coordinated with the um, EPA and the CDC at the time and went in and, and, and did some initial measurements to understand what the scope of, uh, of the issues were. And in, in some areas that, that, that required some remediation, you know, some, some cleanup in some areas to make them um, not to be a, a long-term, you know, public health risk. Uh, and then in uh, 2005, you know, kind of I think as this became kind of a nationally known issue, the, the Congress cha- changed the Atomic Energy Act and gave um, – oversight of radium to uh, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they've gone through a program now where they're going through and, and going back to the places, taking uh, further readings to verify that the, um, you know, the, the areas are safe and that they meet, you know, any regulatory thresholds for, for the public. Uh, we have not, at, to this point, found any radium um, that's uh, above background levels in any of the soils in the Waterbury Clock Factory. But if we find any there, we certainly work with the, the EPA to help us to make sure that, that we do, uh, we take the appropriate, um, uh, you know, appropriate measures to make sure that people and the public are, are, are safe. So at this present moment, there is no plans to actually demolish this factory. Uh, yeah, well, we don't. Yeah, we don't control that. That's really controlled by the property owners. Uh, but what we do know is we know about it. Uh, any plans to to use, you know, to reuse any of the the properties or to um, to demolish them would have to go through the regulatory process to make sure that it's properly measured, characterized, and cleaned up. And so, um, you know, to to the both the federal and the state standards. So I mean, I think the the good, you know, the uh, the positive news there is that we have we know the sites are there. We know what the um, we know if we've seen anything at the site, and we, and we would make sure that you know they they get cleaned up appropriately. That's Jeff Samancic, director of the Radiation Division at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Jeff, before you go, we did get a uh, call from a listener um, who says that her grandmother has an old clock, a clock that was, may have been painted uh, using this radium lace paint. Uh, should she be worried about any effects from exposure? Uh, so, you know, the, the biggest concern with radium is really, you know, and I think your, your show has been talked to it, it's really the ingestion of it that's the problem. There is some... Um, uh, there is some, you know, some emanations that come out, some some low-level radiation that that will come out. Um, you know, your best your best bet there is just to um, kind of dispose it. You know, if, you, if you're concerned about it at all, um, you can contact a. You know, there's a number of uh, radiological consultants that'll measure it, or you could, uh, you know, dispose of that um, of the clock there. But the watches are usually individually the the, the amounts are small on those that they shouldn't present any significant problem to or health risk to uh, to an individual. Jeff Semancic, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you. I want to go back to author Kate Moore uh, from the studios of BBC London. Uh, the, the legacy of the Radium Girls continues, Kate. Tell us how the research into what happened to these women's impacted the Manhattan Project. 
Well, the women left an extraordinary legacy in terms of safety. And as you say, the Manhattan Project was part of that because once the Radium Girls brought this to public attention, you know, launched those legal lawsuits and kind of were not silent, they did not take this lying down, people realised that radium and other radioactive materials were dangerous. And so when the Manhattan Project was underway, Glenn Seaborg, who was one of the leading chemists and scientists working on that project, he wrote in his diary that he had a vision of the Shining Girls, the Radium Girls, as he was walking through the laboratories one night. And he remembered what had happened to them. He remembered how they sickened and died. And he didn't want that to happen to those workers who were employed to win the war for the Allies. And so he insisted that research be undertaken into the material they were using, the plutonium. And it was found to be biomedically very similar to radium. And therefore, with the radium girls in mind, he insisted that non-negotiable safety standards had to be put in place. Those safety standards were directly based on the radium safety standards, which had been generated by research into what had happened to the girls and by studies on their bones, their bodies. And for me, I just want to add as well, you know, we mentioned earlier how some women did not die in that first wave of the poisoning. They lived on for decades, some of them, with their crippling conditions and again one of the extraordinary altruistic things about the radium girls is that they voluntarily were studied for decades and it's thanks to them that we have most of our knowledge about internal radiation they contributed scientifically for decades they voluntarily underwent blood tests bone marrow you know Uh, studies and so on you know and they gave that knowledge as a kind of gift to humanity so that other people were not hurt in the way that they were. So in a way we all have to thank the radium girls for the rights that workers have today. Very much so they had a huge huge impact on that. Well, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, it's a really fascinating, hard read, but Kate Moore, you've really brought a, uh, if you pick up this book, you've really brought um, important details about these women's lives uh, to people. Um, So we want to thank you for joining us today from the studios of BBC London. Uh, Kate Moore, thank you so much. Thank you. Today's show produced by Tim Cohn. It's Tim's last day as a production intern at WNPR. He heads back to the University of Michigan for his junior year. We want to thank him for his great work and for pitching this really hard uh, but important story from our history that we should know about the Radium Girls. Again, his great aunt was uh, Mae Kane, one of the last surviving Radium Girls. She died in 2014 at the age of 107. Thanks, Tim, for your work, as well as Jeff Tyson, technical producer Kion Wolf, executive producer Katie Talarski. You can check out wmpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.